0: If you have spent very much time sharing your faith and witnessing to people, you've heard the following questions or objections posed as questions. You've probably heard this one Well, what about the people who have not heard the gospel? Certainly, God wouldn't send them to hell if they never had the opportunity to respond. Or, what about if they lived in ancient America or Africa, India, China, or wherever? Where it took hundreds of years after Jesus came before the gospel was heard by anyone. Or what about people now who have never heard the gospel? Will they be condemned for all eternity? Will God hold them accountable for something they didn't even know about? Will they go to hell because they did not believe in Jesus when they had never even heard of him? Another variation of the question is, won't those who have done the best that they could do get into heaven? That just seems fair doesn't it? The Apostle Paul responds to these kinds of questions and objections here in this second chapter of his letter to the Romans. In our text, in these verses in 12 through 16, Paul is establishing the main point of verse 11. There is no partiality with God. That is a great truth about God. God will judge everyone with perfect justice. Justice. And, God, and Paul also anticipates the objection of men. Paul's anticipating a Jewish objection, an objection from the Jews. They would say, But surely God will treat us more favorably than the pagan Gentiles. We know God's ways as revealed in His law, and they don't. Well, that would uh, perhaps bring the Gentiles to an objection. You know, it's not fair for God to judge me for disobeying a standard that I didn't know anything about. I've done the best that I could with what I knew. God won't judge me, will he? Well, Paul is going to answer these kinds of questions. If you turn once again to Romans chapter 1, verse 11, the 11th verse. We begin with that great truth about God. For there is no partiality with God. No partiality. God is not a respecter of persons. This is why God will judge the Jews and he will judge the Gentiles. In case you're wondering, everybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. That's that's the biblical perspective. He's going to judge not according to their appearance, not according to their circumstances or their cultural or religious advantage, but he's going to judge them according to something that's more intrinsic. This is something fundamental about God. This is his impartiality. And so this is one of the two big truths that I want you to see this morning. And we need to dwell on this one, God's impartiality, because the whole rest of the text dwells on it. And it'll tie it into the second big truth that we'll see a little bit later, a truth about man. This is such a major truth about God that the New Testament writers, these men who penned the New Testament, had to invent a new Greek word for it. In fact, they invent several words. Before the New Testament, there were no instances in the Greek language at all for what is translated here partiality or no respecter of persons. Now, the idea was in the Old Testament. The idea is filled with, is, is several times in the Old Testament. They would say, God does not receive face. God does not receive face. And in the New Testament, this was so important to make clear that the writers took two words, the Greek word for receive and the Greek word for face, and they combined them into a new verb, to be a face receiver. And they formed two new nouns and several other verses in the New Testament. James uses it as well, a face receiver and face receiving. There is no face receiving with God. Paul says he's not a face receiver. And the idea here is looking at somebody looking at their face to see who they are before you decide how to treat them. You want to see who they are before you decide how to treat them. In the, in the ancient Near East, this was common when greeting a king or somebody important to bow your face low to the ground. And if the one greeted was accepting to you or he wanted to see who you are, sometimes he would lift your face Lift the face of the one bowed down and based on external appearances, based on who the person is, decide whether to accept him or not. How to treat him, how to accept him. And a king accepted or rejected a person by receiving face. In other words, it means to judge by appearance. And on the basis of giving special favor and respect or the converse to refuse to give respect. The noun face receiver pertains to judging others purely on a superficial level. Judging others without consideration of the person's true merits, their abilities, or character. The accepting of the appearance of a, of a person was a Hebraic term for, for partiality, receiving face. It means to judge another person based on the externals or preconceived notions of, of who they are and therefore demonstrate partiality or favoritism. You hear people all the time today say, well, you treated me that way because I was such and such uh, a race or something else. Or I didn't have any money, you know, or we call it racial profiling today. Exactly. And in short, it means to make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another. But God is impartial. He does not receive face. He's not moved by irrelevant external appearances. God sees through them and goes to the heart of the matter. God is not partial to appearance or circumstances. But it also says that God is not a face receiver because nobody breaks the rules and gets away with it. No matter how sorrowful they look, how busted up or broken they look. If you read 2 Corinthians, you find that uh, Paul distinguishes between what's called a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and worldly regret. A lot of people have worldly regret. That means I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry it hurt somebody else. I'm sorry that this happened to me because I did it. Lots of people are sorrowful and you know, their face looks like they're plenty sorrowful. But Paul says, no, to be acceptable before God, we must have a godly sorrow that what? Leads to, to repentance. That's a godly sorrow doesn't matter how powerful a person is or clever or wealthy or how connected they are or those kind of things. Everybody before God is judged by the same measure. At judgment, every person will stand before God and he's not a face receiver. But there's a problem here. Questions keep coming up. Problems keep coming up. Objections keep coming up in this this section. There's an objection that has to be answered. How can God be impartial when only the Jews received the law of God, the law of Moses. So here's the objection. You say, Paul, God is going to judge all people according to their deeds. Therefore, he's going to judge them impartially. But in fact, God gave the law of Moses only to the Jews. And so they have access to what deeds are required of them, and the rest of the world doesn't. How can you say that God is impartial to judge according to deeds when he has only told one group of people in that tiny sliver of land called Israel what deeds they are and what they should do? So the first part of Paul's answer to that objection is in verse 12. God is impartial because for all who have sinned without the law That is, nations, peoples who don't have the law of Moses will also, what, perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that is, those Jews who have the law of Moses, will be judged by the law. You see, this is a direct response to an objection. Well, all people don't have equal access to what they will be held accountable for. This is an objection that comes up and that critics use when we're trying to defend Christianity. They'll say, what about people who don't have the same access to the Bible that you have? And what's Paul's answers? He says, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Different groups of people have different advantages when it comes to the amount of truth that God has revealed. But then he says... The judgment of God will not be partial to those who had access to more truth. It will be according to the truth that they do have. The law of Moses, the Old Testament law, will not be brought in to condemn those who have sinned, who had no access to the law of Moses. It will be used only to judge those who had access to it. To put it simply, God is not going to hold somebody accountable to the Ten Commandments if they've never heard them before. Did you ever think of that? So verse 12 means that God will judge each person according to the light he has been given. That is so important. God will judge each person according to the light that he was given. The Gentiles who did not have the law will be judged apart from the law. The Jews who received God's law will be judged by that law. But note this very carefully. Both groups have sinned and both groups will be judged for their sins. The Gentiles who sinned without the law will perish, which refers to eternal condemnation. Now, we have to wait until verses 14 and 15 to answer the question... How could the Gentiles be guilty of sin if they didn't have the standard of God's law to live by? So so hang on, if you had that question, hang on to it. If you didn't have a question, don't worry about it, we will get to it. <laughs> but the point of verse 12 is that God will judge every person, Jew or Gentile, according to the response to the light that they have been given. So God can't be accused of partiality. You know, Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew chapter I believe it's chapter 11, yeah, chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus really taught the same thing in the the 11th chapter, the 20th verse of Matthew, page 1202. In the 20th chapter of Matthew, Jesus is denouncing the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Yet the people rejected him and they did not repent. How's it going to go for them in the day of judgment? Matthew chapter 11 beginning at verse 20. We read about Jesus. It says in verse 20, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Just an aside here, just this last summer, archaeologists found where Bethsaida is located on the Sea of Galilee. That's just kind of a cool thing that's besides here. It's not cool for Bethsaida at this point. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Instead of asking questions about those who have received very little light and what's going to be happening to them, we should be concerned about those who received a great light. And what's going to happen to them because they rejected the light that they received. Jesus is saying here that there will be degrees of punishment in hell based on the amount of light that a person has received. Those who witnessed Jesus' miracles and yet rejected him will be judged more harshly than those in Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom who never heard about Jesus. And that's kind of what's a little mind-boggling here in our minds, but not in the mind of Jesus. Because Jesus knew how the pagans in those cities would have responded if they had seen his miracles take place. And he says Sodom would still be here today if they had seen that. In the case of Sodom, he could have easily had the angels who were sent to destroy the city perform enough miracles to bring them to faith. But he didn't do that. Sodom did not repent and was judged on the basis of the light that they rejected. And they will spend eternity in hell for their sins. But their judgment, Jesus says, will be lighter than. And that of the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, who witnessed Jesus' miracles, and yet they rejected him. But don't let this fascinating brain teaser go without applying it. Think about this question, as long as we're raising lots of questions today. How much light has the average American citizen received? There's millions of Bibles in this country. There's a church on every corner. The gospel is 24-7 on TV and and on the radio. For whom is it going to go better for at the day of judgment? The average American who has rejected Christ, rejected all this great light that, that he or she has received, or the person who has tucked away someplace in a Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, or pagan country who hasn't had much light? The severity of God's judgment is based on the amount of light a person has rejected. And God does not receive face. So that brings us to another point. Not having the law is not the basis of judgment. Back to Romans chapter 2, the 13th verse. Verse 13 of the second chapter of Romans. When someone perishes who has never heard the law of Moses, who never had the Bible, if we put it that way, it's not because they never heard that law. Not hearing of the law of Moses will condemn anybody. Nobody's going to be condemned because they have not heard the law of Moses, because hearing it will not save anybody. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just or in right standing before God but the doers of the law will be justified. In other words, having access to the moral law of Moses and hearing it and knowing it is not an advantage in the final judgment. At the judgment, the question will not be how much of the law did you possess and hear and know? The question will be in view of how little or how much you possessed, how did you live? How did you live? How did you respond in your heart and your action to the law that you did know? Now, the Jews boasted of having God's law. They heard it every week in their their synagogues. And on my desktop, on my computer, my screensavers are even though we don't need those anymore. I have pictures popping up. I always put my Israel pictures on there when I traveled there in different places. And when we were in the rabbi tunnel, it was called the library, which is right next to the the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, and then you go into the tunnels that they've excavated and stuff. And it's, it's filled with books and library full of Jewish prayers, Hebrew prayers that, that people can read and, and stand in front of the law and those kind of things. And, uh, you know, the leader of our tour group took me over to this beautiful mahogany, pro- probably, you know, uh, wood. wood. Uh, try trying think of what's the wood they have in, in Israel. I should know this. No. Hollywood. Hollywood. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Brain freeze there for a minute. You know, and the leader of, of our, he, he opened it and there was a Torah scroll there. You know, and then all of a sudden these Jewish rabbis, you know, because this, this was holy ground to them. This is holy as it gets since they can't enter the temple area anymore. You know, so they were right there because the law is so holy to them and our tour guide he did the right thing you know when they were all objecting to us opening this up and exposing the Torah to just anybody he, he said to them very respectfully well tell us what this means you know and, and they were very anxious to tell us what what, what that meant you know they, they hear the law week after week in their synagogues and and Paul says here hearing is not enough Hearing the law doesn't put you in God's favor ahead of the Gentiles who have not heard the law. The issue is doing it. Only those who do God's law will be acquitted or justified on judgment day. Now, many Bible commentators understand Paul here to be speaking hypothetically. Because no one is able to keep God's law perfectly, right? Right? And our salvation doesn't depend on keeping God's law. We don't earn salvation by works. Romans 3.20, which is the last verse in this long section, says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No one will be in right standing before God by the works of the law. And Paul's argument in this lengthy section is coming up to Romans 3.23, where all have sinned and what? Fall short of The glory of God. We're all in need of God's saving grace through the gift of his son who died to redeem sinners who trust him. No one will stand, have right standing before God by good works. But that is clear. But there are reasons to argue that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about hypothetical perfect, perfect obedience, which nobody can do. But rather he's talking about a direction of obedience. A direction of obedience. Those who have been born of the Spirit, those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, a direction of obedience that they will practice consistently. Not perfectly, but it's going to be the direction of their life. And for one thing, this agrees with the uniform teaching of the Bible. That God will judge everyone impartially by by his works. A person's works reveal the reality of a person's faith. A person's works reveal the reality of their faith. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10, page 1340. I've quoted this several times as we study the book of Romans, but I don't know if we've actually ever turned to it. Romans chapter 2, at verse 8. Many of you could quote this by heart very easily. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For our good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul is not saying that a person earns justification, right standing before God by obedience. Rather, he's describing those who will be justified by God on judgment day. And these people have proven themselves that they are doers of the law. They obey God's word as a way of life, Not perfectly, but, you know, I like Eugene Peterson's definition of discipleship. He says, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. And that's what it, Paul is saying here. And there's good biblical examples of those who are doers of the law or doers of God's word. You don't need to turn to it, but Romans chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Paul mentions the man who is physically uncircumcised, but he keeps the requirements of God's law. And then he goes on in verses 28 and 29 to specify that he's not talking about outward observance of the law only, but rather obedience that comes from the heart. Obedience that comes from the heart. He's describing Gentiles there who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ and now demonstrate their faith by obedience to God's word. In Romans 8, 4, Paul says that through the cross, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. In other words, those who have trusted in Christ's death now walk by the Holy Spirit and thus fulfill the requirements of God's law. In Luke chapter 1, verse 6, remember that story of John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth? It says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Oh, really? No, it doesn't mean that they lived in sinless perfection, because Zacharias goes on to sin by not believing the word of the angel. Remember that? And he was struck mute that they would have a child in their old age. Nor does it mean that they would somehow earn eternal life by their blameless obedience But rather, they had trusted in God, they had received God's mercy, and they became consistent doers of the law. Their deeds proved that they would be justified on judgment day. So Paul's argument so far is this, that God is not partial to the Jews by giving them the law, because he will judge everyone based upon the amount of light that they were given. And hearing the law only does not justify anyone We must be doers of the law. But immediately that raises another question. Questions, questions, and more questions this morning. How can you do the law if you haven't read it? How can you do the law if you don't have it? Somebody's going to say, how can anyone do what the law requires if they don't have a copy of the law to read and follow? Paul, you say that doing and not hearing is what counts, but still those who have the law have an advantage, don't they? Because they know what... They have to do? And Paul answers that question in verses 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 2. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing them or defending them so Paul's answer to the question how can God be impartial in judging according to our deeds if the Jews have the law and the Gentiles don't and it is that the Gentiles the answer to it the Gentiles do have the law how they have the moral law of God written on their hearts verse 14 says they are a law to themselves And he says in verse 15 that the evidence for this is that their moral behavior, the moral behavior of all kinds of people all over the world shows that they have a sense of many true moral obligations. And their consciences confirm this with their conflicting self-defense. Why did they defend themselves? They knew that it was wrong. And their self-accusation, well, I know it's wrong, I accuse myself, that it constantly brings up when they run into these things. In other words... How do people know that murder or lying or stealing is wrong? And why does it bother them or most of them when they do something like that? Or when somebody else does it? It's because God has written it on their hearts. And just the fact when people watch the news and see something that is wrong and they know that is wrong, it betrays the fact that they know that instinctively. They know right from wrong. And God will right, hold them accountable rightfully for that. And so This brings us to the second great truth in the passage. We saw a great truth about God that he is impartial. <coughs> this is a great truth about man. The truth about man. All have the moral law of God on their hearts. All human beings have the moral law of God stamped on. In their hearts, in their being. Paul is teaching something enormously important here about human nature. Look at verse 14 again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. They instinctively, that that is literally by nature. By nature, by nature of their creation. In other words, Paul is telling us something fundamental here about human nature. This is what it means to be human. To be human means to have the law of God pressed or stamped or written on our hearts. And we've already seen this teaching before in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, where he says, they know the ordinance of God. They know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. How they know the ordinance of God It's stamped on their hearts. Romans 1.26, women exchange the natural function for that which is against nature. They know what's against nature. It's it's natural. In Romans 1.21, he says, they knew God. And the point of all of this is to stress that every human being is guilty before God because everyone suppresses the truth. And none even lives up to the demands of their own conscience, let alone the demands of God known to them. Nevertheless, we are all accountable to God and will be judged without excuse on Judgment Day. All Jews and Gentiles are accountable to God and guilty before Him because they're under the power of sin. And I hope we can clearly see the two great truths one about God, one about man. The truth about God is that He is not partial. And what God's impartiality means is that he judges not on the assumption that we all have access to the same amount of truth, but we all have truth for which we will be held accountable. And then we'll be judged by a response to what we have, not by what we don't have. God is so committed to the dimension of his justice that he secures it by creating every human soul with the imprint of his human nature his moral law, and with the capacity to know his glory is revealed in nature. We saw that uh, before in Romans. So the second great truth is built upon the first one about God, namely, and this is the second great truth, all human beings have the moral law of God stamped in their heart. Every human soul, as it comes to consciousness, knows that it's created by God, we are dependent upon God, and we should honor and thank God And we should do the things that are written on our heart and that failing to do them is worthy of death. There's a lot more we could say about that, and we will in Romans. But I want to close by giving three examples of the kind of difference this could make in your life and make for others if you embrace these truths. And I borrowed these examples from Pastor John Piper. And he gives us three implications for these great truths, that God judges without partiality and that the nature of man, we have the moral law of God stamped on our hearts. And he says the first is an implication of knowing yourself this way. An implication of knowing yourself this way. If God is impartial and judges by fixed standards that he has revealed, and as you know, that's not very popular today. People don't want to talk about absolute standards or absolute truth. It's always situation ethics and, you know, irrelevant truth or something. But if God is impartial and judges by fixed standards that he has revealed, and if you in the depths of your human nature as being created in the image of God, have the moral law of God stamped on your being. Now I'm talking basically to those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ then to know this and embrace this will give a tremendous gravity and solidity and stability to your convictions. Your convictions about God, your convictions about truth, your convictions about right and wrong. You will see clearly that there are fixed truths. There are fixed moral standards that we do not make up. They are not mere human opinions, but they come from God. They come from outside of us. Life is not a cafeteria of equal options from which we can choose, whether it's our lifestyle or whatever it is. There are truths about right and wrong. There are truths that are stamped in the human heart. They're not determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. They're not determined by CNN or Fox News or politicians or any equal rights group. (laughs) Life comes with profound givens. God exists. God is impartial. God is truth and knows the truth. God has imprinted it on the human hearts. It is knowable. We will be judged by it. Therefore, life is not trivial. And our convictions about God and morality gain gravity and solidity and stability in a world that is frivolous, inconsistent, and is wavering. And the second impact is an implication of knowing your children this way. An implication of knowing your children this way. Consider the implication of knowing your children and grandchildren this way. Look upon these children. And if you want to look around and look at them, they are little beings whose souls God himself created in his own image. And in, in whom he inscribed the law of god look at them as beings who are endowed like no other creatures with the capacity to know god and in fact will know god enough to perish by or enough to live by ponder as you look at children you look at your grandchildren you look at the children in this church who will be taught and nurtured and here is a person who has been prepared specially to live according to goodness and truth. Here's a little being that is not to be taken for granted, not to be trifled with, not to be neglected, a being whose main purpose in the universe has been set by God, that he or she know God and know God's will through Jesus Christ. And to know your children this way will make you more serious about your parenting and grandparenting even if it weren't serious enough with all they face today. It'll make us more serious as a congregation and, and more serious about the glorious privilege and responsibility of joining God's inner work through our Sunday school and through our programs and as parents and grandparents of, to bring these children up into Christ and make God known to them and make God loved by them. And finally, another implication. It's the implication of knowing others this way. Everyone you know at work or school or in the store or in the neighborhood has the law of God written on their hearts. Everyone you know knows the impartial God, whether they suppress that knowledge or not. They have it. They know their creator at a profound level, and they know their duty. At a profound level. God has dealt with them deeply. Before you ever came on the scene. God has gone before you. And preparing them for himself. And his will. So here's the first sub implication. (laughs) That's a word. (laughs) An implication due to the implication. Therefore we can be hopeful. Extremely hopeful in evangelism. Not minimizing the blinding effects of sin. But also we can be not despairing that there's no point of connection that we can make with the person that you care about. There are points of connection deeper than you have ever dreamed. So you can speak the truth in love to a person and God may be pleased to make that connection between what they know by nature and what you tell them from God's word what they know by nature and what you tell them from God's word. And the last implication is this, and, and this is so important in a polarizing society where everybody's taking sides on one thing or the other. And You know, if, if you have studied American history and studied the Civil War, historians will say that the main cause of the Civil War was a lack of civility. They just didn't treat either civilly anymore. And so war was the only way to settle that, which, which, you know. And so we, we, we live in a country that has a severe lack of civility. The way we talk about people, talk about others, the way the politicians talk about people, the way they insult one another, and then they want to get people fired because they were insulted back. There you go. <laughs> but here's how it refers to this implication. Beware of despising anyone. Beware of despising anyone. Don't be a face receiver in the negative regard. Every time you disapprove of somebody, who they are, whether it's a politician, a colleague, somebody at work, a church member, a leader of some kind, a person of another culture or race, remember that this person was created in the image of our God. Remember that God has written His law on their hearts and given him or her the knowledge of himself. This is to be marveled and wondered at, not despised. Human nature in the image of God, fallen and depraved as it is, should nonetheless, as John Piper has put it, spread the aroma of sanctity and reverence over all our repugnance or disagreement. There is an honor that belongs to man as man is created in God's image who wrote the law of God on our hearts. Shall we pray? Father, even as I was preparing this message and Dealing with my own heart. Your Holy Spirit moved from preaching and teaching (laughs) to meddling, Father, because uh, it is such a glorious, wonderful truth that God formed man out of the dust of the earth, created him and her, male and female, in his image. And breathed into his nostrils. And the man became a living soul. A soul that was designed and created and made. To have fellowship with you forever and ever, Father. But sin broke that fellowship. Father, I pray as we take this to our hearts. That we will see people that we know and care about. Or people that we don't like. Father, as human beings created in your image. Who are because of sin. Have broken fellowship with you. And that brokenness could last for all eternity. Father, give us a heart for those... That knowing you and have rejected you because you made it evident in creation and you put it in their hearts, Father, that they have willfully rejected you, Father. I pray that they will come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they will know their Savior who died for every one of their sins on the cross. That we may draw near in confidence to the throne of grace. That we may come into your presence. And Father, I pray that we will be used as a congregation, as a church. To make that connection with other people who need Jesus. That we will make that connection through your word with what they know to be true in their hearts. That your Holy Spirit will convict concerning sin and righteousness. And that we will see and be privileged to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.